Easter sometimes is a little difficult to explain for people because it doesn't get quite the fanfare across the board that Christmas does. There's so much secular things mixed in with Christmas. Everybody celebrates Christmas or some version of it at some time. And of course, all the presents and all the activities. And for the most part, Easter gets kind of an underbilling. But Easter is the center of our faith. What happens at Easter truly sets apart the extent of God's love. It's amazing. It is awe-inspiring. It is, it is thrilling to think of Almighty God, majestic God, creator of all things, taking time out of his schedule to, in a sense, separate out his personality and send his son to be right here with us, to walk the face of this earth, to feel and experience and to know the pain and the sorrow and the sin and the, and the depth of desperation that we often feel as humans, as creation. It's, it's beyond description. It's, it is awe-inspiring. But to stop and to pause at Easter and realize that that God loved us so much. He experienced our pain. He experienced our difficulty, even to the point of death. Giving up his own life, Jesus embraced the cross for us on our behalf. And you could almost look at that Friday night and look at that crucifixion and look at the, the violence of it and the difficulty of it and, and the depravity of it and the darkness of it. And, and even as the land itself, as creation itself reacted in that moment and the skies became dark and covered and that afternoon carried a shroud that was shaking and impacting all of creation and it would feel desperate. But Jesus has said a truth throughout his ministry. From the very beginning of his public announcements and his public conversations and his public messages, he kept talking about how death would provide the means by which we could be forgiven. But resurrection would be provide the power by which we could live as forgiven people, knowing God intimately in relationship with him. But nobody comprehended it. I love the way the angels, as the ladies appear in the garden, they're coming to the garden. They're having basically a graveside service the exact same way we have graveside services. They were going through their rituals. They were going through their customs. They arrived that morning in order to prepare the body for final and complete entombment. And the angels are a little bit perplexed because it seems like sometimes we as creation are a little slow to pick up on things. And so they're looking at the, these ladies and they're asking, they're inquiring, why? Why are you here? Why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? In that moment, the angels say a truth that is eternal in nature. The tomb of Jesus Christ is fully and completely irrelevant. That's why, as if you've ever traveled to Israel, you'll find places and you'll find markers and you'll find those locations that say, we think, we suppose. Because about three to four hundred years into Christianity, we became discontent with not having physical signs. It should strike us odd that out of all the people who saw Jesus after his resurrection, nobody remembered where he was buried. 
I mean, you would think Joseph of Arimathea, this man who borrowed the tomb, which is an interesting statement in and of itself, is almost, it was always designed to be temporary. He borrowed a tomb, a brand new tomb. They placed Jesus in it. You would think at some point in time, he would walk with his son or maybe his grandson and pass on to generations in the garden and he would walk up and say, hey, this tomb, this tomb is where we put Jesus after he was executed. But there's no evidence that any conversation like that took place. We do that. Carrie and I went out for a drive one night during COVID. This is going to seem a little bit weird and odd, but we decided to drive through one of the most historic cemeteries in Houston. I am very familiar with cemeteries. I have spent the last 40 years of my life spending a lot of time in cemeteries. And we drove, and she had never seen one of the most historic cemeteries, some of the original Houston founders, some of the great businessmen and businesswomen, all the kind of famous graves, so to speak. And we drove around, and we looked, and we found a marker for a man named Tyrone. Our association of Baptist churches in this region is named Tryon Evergreen Baptist Association for the original missionaries who came to the Houston area. Dr. Tryon actually became the pastor of First Baptist Church Houston, the first pastor planting that church. All this dates back into the early 1800s after the establishment of Texas as as a state and its independence. And we found it. And we're standing there, and I'll be honest, it was, it was emotional, it was sentimental. I never knew the man, I've never been a part of the man, I've been a part of the association named after him. I have close friends with the last three pastors of First Baptist Church Houston. I know them and know them personally and, and appreciate them. I, but I had basically no tie, but it was sentimental to see in this spot he was buried. Now, if I can get that sentimental about somebody I've never met, don't know, have no real connection to, you would think somebody would have thought to say, this is the tomb Jesus was buried in. Now, your Israeli guide will tell you, this is the tomb we think he was buried in, but it's not, because no one knows. The tomb of Jesus is fulfilled in the resurrection to the point it is irrelevant. It doesn't matter where he was buried because he was only there for three days. And that's why angels look at those ladies and say, hey, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He is not here. He has risen, and I love this phrase, just as he said. Now, I am not an advocate of that, so let me just give you one marital tip. Guys, the worst thing we can typically do to our wives, and I don't understand why it's the first thing that comes to mind and the first thing that slips across my tongue is, I told you. I mean, we blow that. I blow it all the time. Sometimes I even exaggerate it. I told you four times. That is so wrong. That is is sin in its finest moment. It is why I'm thankful Jesus died on the cross. And I'm thankful my wife believes in the forgiveness of Jesus and puts up with that and continues to forgive me on a continual basis. But here are angels saying, he told you so. Why are you here? I mean, it seems natural and somewhat amazing to angels that we don't grasp that God just did this for us. He didn't do it for them. Jesus was clear about that. The apostles are clear in Scripture. Angels don't need salvation. 
They either obey or disobey, and when they disobey, they're punished without option of reconciliation. We, on the other hand, were developed for a relationship, and even when we sin, and even when we disregard the love of God, we're accepted, and we're loved, and we're drawn into his presence because he wants to know us. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He is not here. He has risen. And the Apostle Paul would later write to the church at Corinth. And we want to look at that letter this morning for a few minutes together and say that this reality, this truth is absolute and the cornerstone of our faith. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15, the Bible was later, several hundred years after the initial writing of these words, was put into chapters and books and verses, and this one's in 1 Corinthians 15. It's about the middle of your Bible. Corinthians is a, is a, a several chapters long book in the New Testament. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul starts off his statement by reminding us what we believe. And he tracks through this chapter, and this is what we're going to look at for a few minutes. What do we believe? What do we hope for? What do we celebrate? And what do we do? How do we live our lives? And ironically, this passage is all about the reality of the resurrection. So in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul says this to that church. For I pass on to you as of most important, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. It's attested throughout the Old Testament. And that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter. And then to the 12, the other disciples. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive at the writing of this letter. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Paul says, this is what I received. This is what is of most importance. This is the significance of the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, that message of hope that Jesus brought, that experience of intimacy and relationship with God that Jesus brought us. This is, this is the heart of it. If you want to know one absolute truth about Christianity, this is it. That Jesus came and he lived on earth. And that he was crucified, he was executed, and he gave up his life. He didn't lose his life because he couldn't control it or keep it. He gave it up. They had no power, no control over him. At any point in the crucifixion, at any point in the trials, at any point in the immense violence that surrounds that Friday afternoon and evening, Jesus could have brought it to a halt. But he didn't. Because believe it or not, 2,000 years later, sitting in church on an Easter morning in Tomball, Texas, coming in from the different various areas you live to participate in this service, Jesus never stopped never halted, never wavered, but went through that simply for one reason. He felt like you were worth it. He felt like I was worth it. And he gave it up, and it becomes the heart of who we are as Christians. 
It amazes me as a pastor. I don't know if everybody else hears this. If you hear it from your coworkers, you hear it from fellow students. I don't know that anybody hears it quite as much as a pastor does, but I hear it all the time. Definitions of Christianity that have very little to do with the reality of the foundation of Christianity. Christianity is understanding, accepting, and believing the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How we practice Christianity is up to each and every generation. How we worship Christianity and how we worship Christ within our faith is up to every generation. But the hardcore foundation that cannot be escaped in any generation is that Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus was resurrected. He's alive. And it was verified not by one or two people, but it was verified by multiple people. And Paul reminds the church at Corinth, who for the most part were just like us. The people in Corinth were just like us. They were part of a very busy metropolitan area. Probably the majority of that church had never actually seen Jesus in person because the activities didn't take place in Asia. They took place in Israel. They took place in that region of Galilee. They took place in Jerusalem. But they had heard Somebody had told somebody who told somebody who told somebody who believed and now is living out that faith. This is what we believe. Yes, we have all kinds of subsets of beliefs and activities and and programming and procedures and, and things that we hold dear and precious to us, but this is the core. Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus was resurrected for us. This is what we believe. Resurrection is central to our message, to our hope, to our faith. And as a result, this is what we hope. Move down the chapter. There's a whole lot of stuff in between, but down in verse 42, Jesus begins to, I mean, Paul begins to describe the transformation that happens as a result of the resurrection of Jesus. He says in verse 42, now talking about our resurrection, Jesus' resurrection is central to our faith. Now there's our resurrection. This is what we hope for. So in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42, it says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, an earthly body, raised a spiritual or a heavenly body. This is what we hope for. This isn't it. Now, I am enjoying this, so I don't want anybody to get the wrong impression. As Christians, we enjoy this life. We do all the same things everybody else does. We get together with friends. We laugh. We cry. We do activities. We work. We put in effort. We raise money. We, we give paychecks. We raise families. We, we get married. We have children. We pass it on to other generations. We, we love this life. But we have a hope that transcends this life. I constantly am reminded of the corruption in which my life was sown. I just acknowledge it and confessed my faults, my weaknesses, very seriously as a husband. I have faults and weaknesses as a pastor. I have faults and weaknesses in multiple areas. I always remember it. 
But in order to not get overwhelmed and completely live out my life in despair, I also remember there was a new day coming. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything, and that resurrection changes me. That corruption, that corruption will be raised in incorruption. That dishonor will be raised up in glory. That weakness will be raised up in power. That natural earthly body that afflicts me and bothers me all the time and because so much of a part of the obsessive, obsessive side of my life I, is focused on that will be completely raised a heavenly, a spiritual body beyond understanding, beyond comprehension, but so much better. It's so important that in verse 50, he starts saying these comparisons about transformation again. He says in verse 50, what I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This is not a physical kingdom. It's not about rulers and powers and authorities and politics and manipulation. It's not a physical kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. And so as a result, he says, corruption cannot inherit incorruption. We can't do this on our own. We never have, been, no, God's never expected us to do this on our own. And how many of us still try and still think, I've got to do this. Now, th that's a good thing. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better pastor. I want to be a better person. And I'm constantly evaluating and analyzing and looking at my life and finding out ways I can strategically be a better person. But I will never be good enough to deserve the glory and the strength of the new body and the new eternity with him. Because his kingdom isn't about my accomplishments. It's not about my flesh and blood. It's not about what I can do. His kingdom is about what I anticipate because of what he has done for me. Listen, I tell you in verse 51, a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will all be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility. And this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. Now, I am human enough that I can honestly say, even if it feels a little awkward, I want you to remember me. I, I want my children to tell their children and tell their children you had this, um, I had this amazing dad who became an amazing grandfather, who became an amazing great-grandfather. I, I want you to remember. I don't want you to walk through a hallway, see my picture on the wall, and go, oh yeah, he was pastor here back then. I want you to remember the time we talked together, a time we spent time together. I, I want no less than anybody else to be remembered. But here is the reality of the full transformation and my hope. Jesus' resurrection made his grave, his tomb, irrelevant. Jesus' resurrection will make my grave and my tomb irrelevant. You can walk through the pasture. I have asked for my ashes to be sprinkled and say, I remember. I want my kids to walk through that pasture and say, I remember when I was nine years old and dad took me hunting here. I remember, probably because they were too young, it's because I've told them the story over and over and over again of what it was like on that first hunt. 
What is life for Alexander who stayed up all night playing cards and talking to the other kids in the cabin to get up, haul him out there in the cold, in the freezing cold, have him fall asleep with his dad sitting next to him wondering if he has hypothermia or if he's just tired. And what it was like when his dad woke him up and said, there's, there's a deer. I had told him in advance, I said, you can, do, you can do one of several things. You can just look at it. You can take a picture of it. In the case, both kids are artistic in nature. I said, you can draw a picture of it or you can shoot it. I woke him up. He started, he looked, he looked out the window and goes, oh yeah, that's what we're here for. Picked up the rifle, shot, put the rifle back down and I'm not exaggerating when I say within a minute he was asleep again. It was a life-changing moment <laughs> for me, not for him. It was a great moment. It's a moment I remember every day of my life. And I would love for him to walk through that pasture and say, yeah, dad's dirt's here somewhere. And I remember, I want to be remembered. But the reality is what I believe about the resurrection of Christ and what I hope for indicates that wherever the physical part of me gets put to rest, becomes irrelevant in light of the resurrection because I am not there. I am alive with Jesus. Now, I'm not saying, so let me just, you know, anytime you talk, you have to kind of put some parentheses these days to make sure. I am not saying there's anything wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with that night when Carrie and I drove through that cemetery and we looked at all those graves and, and I don't think there was anything wrong standing there by the grave of Dr. Tryon and, and, and shedding tears for a man I never knew, never had a relationship with, but I'm a part of his legacy because he founded Baptist churches in the Houston area. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with respect and with honor and with dignity. But he's not there and I'm not gonna be there because what we hope for is the full, complete transformation that happens at our resurrection in one of two ways. We will either die and we will, we will experience that death and go to be with Jesus or Jesus will come back and we will be taken right then and there and we don't even have to ever experience death, which I'm, I'm open to that. I'm perfectly fine. If Jesus wants to come back this Easter and take us all to be with him in the kingdom that can't be entered into physically, so he has to take us with him, I'm perfectly fine with that. Because this is what I hope for. And this is what we celebrate. The simple comment in verse 54. When this corruptible body that is, is clothed with incorruptibility, this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. And here's the end of verse 54. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, quoting from Isaiah 25 and Hosea 13, where, O death, is your victory? Where, death, is your sting? The sting of death is in our sin. The power is in the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that hour is really important because it's not just the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. I made that decision to believe in Jesus for myself. I had friends who believed in Jesus. I had people around me who believed in Jesus and they all influenced me, they all helped me, but I had to make that final decision. He's my Jesus. He's my relationship. 
And I asked him, I simply prayed, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sin. Come and live in me. Come and live in my heart. Be my savior. It's awesome that he's the savior of the world. But the best experience any one of us will ever have is when he becomes our savior. Thanks be to God for the victory he's given us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. So we make that decision simply and profoundly to not just believe in the resurrection of Jesus as a historical event, but to believe in the resurrection of Jesus and how it impacts us, our decision to know Jesus, our victory in Jesus, our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ who has power and authority over all things, including my life and the creation around me. Easter comes down to trusting him. This is what we celebrate, our relationship with Jesus. And that impacts what we do. The conclusion of this, which always amazes me, here Paul is talking all about the power of the resurrection of Jesus and how it impacts and transforms our life. And his final conclusion in verse 58 is, therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is what we do. We wake up tomorrow morning and we realize and recognize, you know what? Easter changed today. And I can live a new life today because I met Jesus yesterday. I can live a new life for my family. I can live a new life in my employment. I can live a new life in my community. I can live a new life in every relationship and circumstance I find myself because Jesus just changed my forever. Because his resurrection is my resurrection. His victory is my victory. And he is my Lord Jesus Christ. I am in a relationship with them. And so I'll just keep on. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Because you know that what you do for the Lord, our labor in the Lord is not in vain. So it's not in vain that you're here this morning. It's not in vain that you're going to wake up and do things tomorrow, but you're going to know that Jesus is a part of it. Just simply trust him. Let's take a moment before we close out with worship and let's just pray together and let's just ask him, Maybe it's the very first time. Maybe this is the first time you've ever actually heard and understood. This is what Christianity is about. This is what it means to be a Christian. Going to church, all the other things that you might think Christianity is about isn't about it. This is it. Jesus came here. He lived, he died, and he was resurrected for you, for me. And so let's just stop and say, okay, I'm going to make that relationship mine today. And then let it affect tomorrow and the next day and the rest of our lives until we're in his glorious kingdom. And somebody says, I missed James. But James is okay because he's in heaven with his Savior. That can be your epitaph as well. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing that you sent your son only because you love us. It is amazing that while he was here, he taught 
things that honestly that generation couldn't understand and we're here 2,000 years later still not understanding it. But this morning, we remember the simplicity. He came for us. He died for us. And he was raised for us. So today, whatever my past has been, I want to say today, Jesus is my Savior. Today, I'll follow Jesus. Today, I believe in the life, the death, the burial and resurrection of Jesus.